Hey, my name is Josh Korak. I'm a mental health counselor in the Northern Colorado area. In this space, I get the chance to interview professionals in the field, talk about mental illness, self-care, and so much more. With this show, I ask you to join me in doing what one of my favorite philosophers, a Buddhist monk, Thich Nhat Hanh says, smile, breathe, and go slowly. This is Care with Korak. Welcome back to Care with Korak. Today I'm joined by a dear friend and teacher of mine, Mr. Scott Burns. Writer and adventurer, Scott Burns is a 24-year veteran English-slash-creative writing teacher, a 12-year geosciences educator, and active member of the National Science Teachers Association. With Tony, his wife of 40 years, he researches and documents stories about the nature, meaning, and unity of love for their multimedia project, Journeys to Love. The tale of their latest six summers, 100,000 miles in 48 states traveling by Harley to diverse American cultures, communities, and lifestyles looking for love are currently being offered via their popular YouTube channel, recent TED Talk, and to publishers via their upcoming books, Love, your seventh sense, and a boat, a raft, a bridge, the discovery, meaning, and hope of love in America. Super excited for those. Um, definitely recommend you check them out when they're when they're available. Before Scott was the coolest cat on the planet, I mean, can you, can you blame him for doing all those crazy things? Uh, he was still the coolest cat as one of my sixth grade teachers. And if I remember correctly, Scott, you were also rocking the bass in a band or two at the time as well. I mean, how much cooler can you get? Even though I only had Scott as a teacher for a short time, he really did uh, impact a lot of really powerful lessons to me. One such lesson that I'll always remember and has always stuck with me was the importance of opening the door for other people, but especially for women. Uh, Yes, I still do that, Mr. Burns. Thank you very much. Thanks to you. Fellas, if you're not opening the door for your ladies, then what the heck are you doing, right? All right. Uh, Well, that's enough of that tangent, but I'm super grateful to have spent some time speaking with and learning from Scott again. In this episode, Scott shares about uh, how Tony and him started Journeys to Love with a quote-unquote simple question, right? Uh, How it has developed into finding the answer to the question, what is love, and more of the research and stories behind all of this. Scott and Tony have been putting out a lot of content lately, so make sure to check it all out. Subscribe to their YouTube channel at www.youtube.com slash C slash Journeys to Love. You can also find that in the episode description. Um, If you want to support what they're doing financially as they are supporter-funded, become a Patreon patron. Say that 10 times fast at www.patreon.com slash Journeys to Love. Follow them on Instagram at journeys underscore to underscore love. And then to see Scott's recent TED Talk, which I 110% recommend. We talk a little bit about it in the episode, um, but it's a great talk. Uh, check out the link in the episode description. Check out my social media at Josh Korak. Um, give me a follow on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube for video clips, podcast previews, and more mental health content. If you're in a mental health crisis, please call 988 or go to your nearest emergency room. 
If you are living in Colorado and are interested in scheduling a session, please reach out at sojourncounselingco.com slash josh. All right, guys, I think that's it. Let's not waste any more time and get into it. This is Care with Korak with Scott Burns. All right. Hey, hey, Mr. Burns, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. It's good to see you. It's really good to see you. I mean, it's it's been a while since we've been able to connect. Um, you know, I, I, I think the last time I saw you in person was probably when I was in elementary school. So, <laughs> or maybe, maybe some of the times when I came to visit, I don't know, but yeah. Well, like I said, when we got, when we first got together, you haven't changed a bit except for the beard. Yeah. Except the beard. Yeah. My, my lazy scrub. Um, well, cool. I'm, I'm super grateful for you coming on and, um, you can share a lot about what you've been up to for the past several years and, um, I think it's just such a unique story. And so, Thanks. uh, if you wouldn't mind just taking a little bit of time, introduce yourself, tell them, our audience, uh, what you've been doing. <laughs> wow. Um, well, I was born and no, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, since, um, I was a middle school teacher, um, for 24 years. I taught, uh, English, creative writing and geosciences and an odd sort of twist. Um, but I've had a pretty eclectic background. You know, I've been a writer. Um, you know, I've been a Renaissance festival performer, a blackjack dealer, truck driver, um, a lot of different things over the course wow. of my life. And, yeah. and at the end of my teaching career, um, towards the last couple of years, my wife and I were kind of had reached that crossroad that a lot of people do where you start, you know, questioning life, the universe and everything and comparing notes. And I'd also had a parallel career in the music business. My wife and I were involved in Colorado music industry for almost 30 years. And we'd done pretty much everything together. And in talking about where we wanted to be and what we wanted to be doing with our lives, we realized, you know, it was going to be something parallel again. Um, and comparing our notes, we, you know, we've been motorcycle, avid motorcycle tourists for many years and in our travels and, you know, through acting Renaissance festivals and music business, being together as long as we have, cause we've known each other since junior high, um, mm. is kind of an anomaly. And so we were continually fielding this recurring question about our relationship. People, you know, asking, and the way it was usually couched is what's your secret. And, and looking for some big secret to love and relationships isn't anything new. Uh, but the more questioning we got about that, the more sort of prodding we got about that question, we decided to sort of combine all these interests because we're not qualified to answer that question, tell people how to love and how to live their lives. Uh, but we figured we knew who would. And so we hopped on the bikes and we decided we'd take a couple of months and blow through that vast fortune that I had amassed <laughs> as an English and science teacher um, traveling to as many different people, places, cultures, lifestyles, and events around the country as we could find, mm. um, seeking an answer to that question. And, so, you know, what is your secret? What's the secret to love? What is, you know, this thing that everybody is always looking for? And frankly, it was a pretty naive question. And mm. we realized that when one of our first interviews, um, we had this sort of amorphous plan that we collect love stories from around the United States. And then we present, you know, either through we pitched for an unscripted reality TV series. Um, we did PRX radio programming for a while, but we had this sort of amorphous plan how we were going to present it. But we wanted to present all these stories and say, this is what we discovered in asking that question. 
Well, one of the first couples that we encountered was a couple in Roswell, New Mexico, a pastor and his wife, Pastor Rick Hale and his wife, Mary. Mm. And, uh, you know, we had been riding all day long. And when we're riding, we look like a couple of bikers from South Dakota, which is another thing that we are. And so we got to <laughs> we got to Roswell, New Mexico, and we found that newspapers, law enforcement and local churches are great places for us to go for stories. And so the local newspaper sent us mm. to a church and it was this huge, immense mega church. You know, if you picture, you know, the, the million parishioner church with the blue velvet carpet and stuff. And Pastor Rick and his wife invited us in, super gracious people. Um, and we sat down, we started going through our interview process, and we asked that original question. You know, this is back mm -hmm. in 2015. And we asked them that question we originally hit the road with, what's your secret? Well, Pastor Rick looked at us and he said, you know, in love, like in life, there's no secret to it all. You be kind to each other and you do it for a really long time. Mm. And I remember Tony and I looked at each other and it was like this mutual uh, realization that, well, that question's been answered better than we're ever going to get another answer to it. And our questions have to get a lot better. Mm. And so through the period of the next couple of years, you know, we've ridden 100,000 miles across 48 states over a period of about six years. Wow. And we've talked to everyone from, you know, we've been to the reservation lands in South Dakota, military bases on the coast, ranch lands, Vietnamese boat builders, prison hospices in Colorado. Um, you know, just the widest variety of people that we could discover and that we could talk to. And as the stories developed, we realized that we were onto something much larger because love wasn't something, and we already knew this, I don't know why it didn't occur to us before, um, that love wasn't something that was relegated to, you know, interpersonal relationships, to marriages, to, um, you know, couple stories. And mm -hmm. we started to expand that, you know, what is, what, what is your, what's your secret became, you know, what, well, what is love? And mm -hmm. how does it apply to people's careers, to the causes that they're after, to their loves of, we called it loves of place, purpose, and one another. So that looking for the secret went to looking for love. And then as we realized how many different manifestations love was taking in people's careers and, you know, the, the places and, and the events that, that they took part in, we realized, too, that love wasn't a behavior. And it wasn't an emotion. Um, it was something that was transcending both of those things. And so we started to realize that one, that question that we had, what is love, was leading us to some pretty remarkable, um, not only remarkable stories, but a pretty re remarkable realization um, that I remember sitting in a, a hotel room in uh, Provo, Utah. We'd finished, we actually finished interviewing a couple of people from the Mormon Tabernacle Choir in Salt Lake City. Oh, wow. And we, in looking at, you know, because that was a relationship to love and, a, and the sort of community within the choir and, you know, different aspects of love. And I, and I remember looking through videos of about 100 different people that I was getting ready to, to edit for a YouTube channel and realizing what a curiosity it is that when we ask people around the United States that question, what is love? None of the answers were ever the same. There, mm -hmm. there wasn't a universal definition, a, an idea of, you know, what is this for all of us? And from that, I started to realize that there were some real parallels with work that's currently being done in consciousness. 
because, you know, and you're probably aware through your psychological studies that psychologists, neuroscientists, people that are doing research in the brain can show you what the neurocorrelates are of, mm. of, well, they call it love, but actually what they're studying, and we'll probably talk about this more, is lust, attraction, and attachment, mm, yeah. which are not love. Those things are not love. And, right. and I can go through and show, you know, demonstrate why. But when you look at those things being measured, you know, neuroscientists will say, well, th these are the things that are causing this. These are the neurotransmitters. These are the hormonal reactions. These are the areas of the brain that light up when these things happen. And therefore, this is where they're being created. And, and I realized, no, you, you can't say that at all. Any more than psych neuroscientists, when they're looking at the causes of, of consciousness, can say, we know what causes consciousness. No, we know what correlates with consciousness. But so I started to realize that this, this question about what is love needed to be answered in order to show what the commonalities to it were, and that there might actually be some direct relationships between love and consciousness itself. So that's probably a long way of going about telling you that we were out looking for love on a couple of bikes and we've discovered some things that we didn't anticipate. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just super interesting, like how this has just developed so immensely. Um, so what are some of the things that you're finding? I mean, I just this this connection between this idea of love, what is love and how you're starting to connect it to this idea of consciousness. Um, what is that looking like? <laughs> well, Gosh, I'm not I'm not sure where to go about attacking that without going way back into the project again. Um, in a nutshell, um, you know, there's some really fascinating work being done in. Maybe I should go back into the further back into the book. This is where I told you I wouldn't give you a bunch of editing to do, and I already lied. <laughs> no, uh, this is good. <laughs> when we started to when I started to look, first of all. Okay. Are you going to be able to edit this? Because I got to gather my thoughts on this a little bit. Yeah, go for it. If you, if okay. you need to take a second. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think I got a little bit ahead of myself on, on you know, Tony's involvement here. So yeah. Well, after, I, mean, I asked you a pretty broad question too. <laughs> yeah. Well, because, you know, this, this is um, an awful lot of work and, and it really yeah. evolved, you know, uh, quite differently. So anyhow, when we came off the road in um, 2019, of course, you know, our lives hit the same wall that everybody's did because we had that, here's our life and here's our life after COVID. Mm. <laughs> and so right. being being limited in being able to travel and then my wife was um, has been dealing with, you know, the symptoms of what's commonly referred to as long COVID now. Um, she's had to pull back from the project, which has given me a chance to sort of sit back and synthesize all this. And that's where the work and the book is coming from. And as I went through and released, if you're interested, you know, on our YouTube channel, you can see much, much of this work um, and some of the, the sort of communal answers that we've gotten from people around the yeah. United States to, to questions, everything from, you know, what is love to why don't people commonly find it um, to the most contentious question of all that we ask, which is what's the greatest love song ever written? <laughs> love on um, top by wait. beyonce of course <laughs> i've not actually heard that one yet but my, my my most recent favorite answer we've gotten to that is the rainbow connection by kermit the frog oh my gosh <laughs> I thought, that's I never great thought that was a love song but yeah they're absolutely right so anyway after we got back 
from that last journey and you know we were limited in being able to travel it was really a blessing in disguise but it just gave me a chance to sit down with you know these hundreds of interviews and you know i've got five terabytes worth of media from all over the wow. united states that we've collected um photographs and interviews and you know transcripts uh videos of course um, that has gone into this work. And as I've been able to synthesize all that, both through the recent TED Talk that I did um, and the book, the more the answers to the, that question about what is love evolved, the more I realized that there are so many people offering pieces uh, of what it means. Uh, mm. For instance, in the science section, in the, in the book, I've just um, finished the section on science. I wanted to know, you know, breaking down basically in a formula for mind, body and spirit, you know, what's the the in other words, the body of science would be physiology. Um, the mind of science would be psychology and the spirit of science that I chose would be epigenetics. Mm -hmm. All these different uh, fields of science are offering pieces of what they think this means. What is love? Well, physiology can offer you, you know, some of the neurocorrelates to, you know, what happens when people are attracted to each other or what's the, the, role, the role of attachment in the physiology of our bodies. Um, psychologists are able to offer information about relationships and, you know, the sort of psychology about love but they can't really answer what love itself is. Right. Um, epigeneticists, when you look at um, some of the book as relying on the work of a cell biologist by the name of Dr. Bruce Lipton, um, is showing that um, the energy uh, of cells is actually affected by the electromagnetic energy that is produced by people's brains when they are in love. You know, we're back to those neurocorrelates again. Mm -hmm. um, so each of these science, each of these sciences is offering a little aspect of what love is, but none of them can answer it themselves. So I wanted to expand that a little bit and say, okay, well, if science is the body of what we're looking for in this answer to what is love, you know, what would the spirit be? So now. You know, we're going through and, and looking at um, what different religions have to say and what philosophy has to say, which would be the mind. Um, and we're getting little pieces of each of these points of view leading up to, and this is what the premise of the book is going to be, a sort of unified theory of what love is. You know, if, if you look at the philosophy, the science, the religion, the empirical studies that we've done, the information that we've gotten from people from hundreds of different backgrounds around the country, what's the one thing that we can say love is? And how do we go about sort of capturing that in our lives in an actionable way that says, you know, well, this is what you go do with yourself about it. Right. Yeah. I, you know, what just stands out to me the most is just kind of the holistic approach you're taking. You know, you're talking about how, you know, historically these different fields of science and philosophy and religion and whatever else there may be are kind of attacking it from these different angles, but you're really trying to systemically, holistically bring it all together. Very much so. And I mm -hmm. think when I first started into all this research, you know, it did occur to me that people looking at our work first of all when we say when we first started getting the road and we said we're out collecting love stories there was an assumption made and this is part of what i cover in the introduction to the book that when you say love story what you're talking about are relationships couples um well all of us have love stories that 
transcend that. We have love right. stories with, well, in your case, with your career or with mm-hmm. your studies or with a cause or with our animals or with our hometowns. I'll give you a quick, for instance, um, one of the people that put us on track that we really needed to expand these studies is a fellow that we ran into in Ticonderoga, New York. Um, his name's Jim Colley. And Jim is one of the world's foremost Elvis impersonators. And when I, <laughs> when I think Elvis impersonator, you know, and I always think of it as kind of kitschy, sort of cheesy party favor, you know, like the soccer, whatever. Uh, oh, no, this guy is an absolute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Mr. McGinney>. yeah. <laughs> but Jim is a world class performer. He's an actor. And, you know, he's deeply devoted to the study. But we also found out because the place that we interviewed him was his actual business in Ticonderoga. He was an assistant set designer, costume designer for Star Trek The Next Generation. And he's he's this avid Trekkie. Well, because of this, he and some of his friends about 10 or 12 years ago, they started making fan films. They wanted to produce Star Trek episodes themselves. Right. Because, you know, it's all over and it was kind of fun. And in order to do this, they had to design sets. Well, in designing these sets, one thing led to another, as these things often will. And a former producer from Desilu Studios and CBS found out that he was rebuilding these sets, gave him the original blueprints for the Star Trek original series. Stop. So they took (laughs) these blueprints and they started building. Well, now without going through his whole story now he has a converted grocery store in downtown ticonderoga new york where the entire set of the original starship enterprise has been recreated and he leads tours there while we were there interviewing him william shatner's agent called to make sure that shatner could come to lead tours for the 10th anniversary he's had john Lan- john delancey william koenig michelle nichols william shatner uh, Patrick Stewart, all these people have come through. And when wow. you go there, you're walking through the Starship Enterprise. So Jim took his love for Elvis, used that money to to d- devote to his love for Star Trek, and is taking the money from both of those things and reinvesting them into trying to to revigorate, reinvigorate the small town, this historic Revolutionary War small town of Ticron, Ticonderoga, New York. Jim's love permeated everything that he does. And when you talk to him, you just get a sense for this. And, you know, when we went from there to uh, Tibetan Monastery above Woodstock, New York, where we talked to several of the monks that were there about the sort of Buddhist point of view on love and found out that several of them went there originally because it was Woodstock, New York. They were big rock and roll fans. One of the Tibetan <laughs> no Buddhist monks, his favorite, his favorite love song was... Uh, um, Michael Jackson's "We Are the World," <laughs> oh my gosh. and to to find ourselves sitting on the top of the steps of a Tibetan Buddhist monastery in Woodstock, New York, while a monk sings Michael Jackson to us, we're going, "We love this too." And, <laughs> and the point, the point, the the sort of middle part of the evolution of all this was when we realized that that sense that we had of sitting in the, in the Starship Enterprise with the Elvis impersonator or the sitting at the top of the, step, the steps to the Buddhist monk or when we were invited in to sing with the choir, um, Reverend Cromwell Handy is the current pastor of Martin Luther King's former church in Montgomery, Alabama. And we were invited in for services and Sunday school and to sing with the choir with Martin Luther King's former congregation. And we're going, all of these experiences are showing us that there's a unity here in love. 
that's far transcendent of just, you know, these 10 easy steps and relationship stories and stuff that people commonly uh, associate with the love story. And we wanted that to be a sort of point of uh, accretion, I suppose you could say, to use a stellar astronomy term, you know, <laughs> gravity tends to accrete things around and it becomes the sphere. We wanted that sphere to be, here's what we've really discovered about love. And here's how it's bonding rancher you know trump red state ranchers in montana with vietnamese boat builders with the prison hospice people with what we discovered from you know the reservation lands in and the reservation lands are are richly diverse across the united states um all of these people all of us americans you know expatriates people we've interviewed from around the world during our study during our rides here in the united states we all have this one thing in common and that's why it was so essential i know i kind of bunny walked on you trying to describe the evolution no of the project, this is perfect but this is why answering that question what is love became so vital because we realized that that point was the place that people could really come together. You know, when we were in the classroom together, I don't know, do you still have your yearbook? From, oh, I'm sure. From yeah. all those years ago? Yeah. Probably, I'm guessing probably in your yearbook, I signed it with it with Find a Rock. That's usually how I how I, I wrote. actually remember that. That's usually what I wrote in its <laughs> yearbooks because – the, the, yeah, can I go into this real quick? Yeah, no, please. The reason I always wrote that is because there's a fascination with with when you really dig deep into something in the world, um, like a molecule of water could have been constituent element in the tears of Cleopatra, could have washed off the backs of Hannibal's elephants crossing the Alps. It could have been, you know, part of the primordial stew. It could have been the tears of a tyrannosaur. I don't know if they cried. Um, a rock, a simple rock that you come across contains elements in it that at one time were part of the fusion process in a star. You know, when you find a dandelion and you blow the seeds out into the wind, don't you wonder how far it will go? How did all the, how does the seed know which direction to turn, to grow, to germinate? You know, what might a dandelion look like in a thousand years? All these simple things in the world are contained, they contain so much wonder. And if you just stop and look and try to dig a little bit deeper into them, you find out that, you know, this is such a rich, diverse world and your mind is capable of so many wonders within it. And so when I wrote Find a Rock in your yearbook, it was don't lose track of that sense of how much we all share and what a blessing and a miracle it is to be here. And when Tony and I went through all this work and we found out, hey, this question, what is love, is putting us onto something much deeper, much more visceral um, in our relationships with each other. And especially at a time in this world when link and unity and bonding and relationship and, and being able to understand what we all have in common is so absolutely vital. Mm. Um, and so being able to sort of capture all this and now that it's started to snowball a little bit with the TED talk, with the book coming out, um, with the YouTube channel taken off, um, we're really finding a sense of satisfaction in, in seeing all these diverse voices start to come together now. Right. It's, it's, Really cool to see. I mean, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but to what's sounding like to me is that this has, you know, developed from just a curiosity, 
wonder state of what is love, right? Or even before that, um, what's the secret, right? To now it almost seems like your goal is what is that common thing that we call love, right? That is bringing us together and how can we share that with others, right? To bring us Absolutely. together in such, like you said, such a divisive time. I mean, you know, there's just so much division going on. Yeah, and uh, that you put your finger right on it. And that's mm. the reason why when I say, you know, I'm looking, we're looking for the sort of unified theory to love. Um, one of the terms one of the interesting things is there's no real word for the study of love. There isn't. I, I thought, yeah, you would think that there would be, you know, there are these different disciplines, you know, when you look at, you know, uh, psychology, for instance, right. you know, what, what discipline within psychology would you say is the study of love itself? <sighs> not relationship. I mean, I, not yeah, but no, what I, is I love? couldn't, there isn't. Yeah. Love. You know, I thought, so on our website, I call it Loveology because there really isn't anything else. <laughs> Loveology, um, yeah. One of, one of the historical concepts about love and one of the things that we thought was interesting and just something I touched on in the TED Talk too, is there's this assumption, uh, an almost universally accepted assumption that there are different kinds of love. That, well, you have the love that you have for your kids. You have the love that you have for your wife. You have the love that you have for ch for ice cream. You know, a theater director we interviewed in Birmingham, Alabama, pointed that out. He said, you know, I can say that I love my wife and I can say that I love this flavor of ice mm. cream, but they're really different things. Different meanings. which is question that and say, are they really? Because what you're saying with every mm. single one of those every single one of those statements is, well, it's a love of this or it's a love of that, but it's still love. You're saying it's it's this, it's like the waters of life or the waters of the Nile or the waters of the ocean. Yeah, they maybe seem like they're different things because they're in different places. Still water. Yeah. What is in the same sense? What is love? We're saying it has all these types. And the Greeks, you know, we go back to ancient Greece. They had terms for all these different kinds of love. That's uh, what know, I was just going to ask you about for romantic love and storge for community and family and whatnot. And so there was, you know, going way back, we had this sort of concept of different types of love. And so when I was where I'm looping back on all that to the original thought, um, when we look at, you know, why isn't there a study of love itself mm. or, you know, a sort of uh, scholastic discipline, an academic discipline where you can sort of where do I go to look that up? There really isn't one. And so when I started to look at, well, what would we call this oneness, this this sort of, you know, if there's a universal love what would we call it? And the term I've come up with is aerosphere. And I know that eros has that sort of romantic connotation, but had to choose one and storge sphere just didn't have a ring to it. <laughs> Phileus sphere didn't quite do it. So you agape, know, come up sphere. With agape sphere. Yeah. And you know, that may be for, you know, faith oriented love. There may be something to that, Sure, um, but it's one of the concepts one of the two primary concepts that I've come up with in the book for trying to capture the sort of unified theory of love. One is looking at love using the metaphor of a sense. And that's something I covered in the TED talk, you know, using right. love as a seventh sense of getting a better understanding of what it is outside of, if you're going to say love isn't an emotion and it's not a behavior, 
then how do we sort of conceptualize of it? How do we even picture what it is? And thinking of it as a sense, as the seventh sense is one of those ways, where all this stuff sort of fits together, you know, what is it in the, the sort of ball of unity that we're looking for through love? What do we call that thing? Mm. And so the name I've come up with is the aerosphere. You know, we're all right. populating this thing. What is our relationship to one, one another within that thing? You know, this is something mm. we all share, but we don't share it equally or from the same perspectives or, or anything. And so that's sort of the conceptual framework for trying to find this unified theory. Yeah. You know, that, that almost over anything in the TED talk really stood out to me is when you can kind of discuss this, this idea of love as a sense, right? Um, mm -hmm. This has been something that's coming up a lot for me with other podcast guests. And then also just in my own work, I do a lot of work with trauma. And so, um, in the in the field of trauma, there is this concept, this sense of what we call interoception, right? I don't know if that's something you've come right. across in your research. Mm -hmm. It is, yeah. How how's that maybe connect with? Because interoception, right, is this idea of this inner sense of just just knowing and feeling and kind of what's going on inside of you. How does that maybe connect to this sense of what you're calling aerosphere? Well, the aerosphere is a sort of separate idea. The, the purpose of looking at love as a sense is because, and I don't want, I don't want to describe, and I was careful in the TED talk to say, you know, we can understand love as a sense. I'm not saying that, you know, it is right, right. sense. But at the same time, um, it makes sense that it would be a sense, like, cause it, right. it is well, a because sense there that are we so, have. Yeah. There are so many parallels mm -hmm. between, you know, when you look at, um, for instance, we talk about these different kinds of love. You're familiar with the concept of synesthesia? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we, we look at the idea of there being different kinds of love. Well, looking at love as a sense, you know, you, you love at the same time you see or you hear or you touch. There's this constant mix of sort of sensory information and love colors that it's it's part of that. Mm. Um, love has, you know, we ask questions like, well, if you're going to love your neighbor, you're going to love everybody. You're going to love all the time. You know, that's a wonderful concept, but how do you do that? Do we feel guilty about not being able to love everybody? Well, of course not. You can't see everybody. You can't hear everyone. They might mm -hmm. be within the range of your sight, but you overlook them. That's not a failing or a, you know, a fault of anyone's. Right. It's just, you know, your senses have a limited range. It's, you know, your perceptive capabilities aren't omnipotent. Mm -hmm. Um, how you sense yourself. This is, it always made me laugh every year when I would record because when you guys, when you were in school, I don't know if you remember when we did your speeches, we, we did classroom speeches. Yes. I can't um, remember what I, about. <laughs> yeah. You'll probably find the notes to it. Yeah. <laughs> I used to record, I would occasionally record those, show them on video or, or audio. And it was always interesting to me that most people hate the way they sound when they're recorded because mm. they don't sound like themselves. You know, you, you hear yourself differently because right. your voice reverberating through the air and causing sound waves and being received by someone else sounds different than your voice to you, which you're hearing reverberated through bone and mush in your head. Well, hopefully it's constructive mush in your head, but <laughs> it really is. It really is a different thing. You sense yourself differently. And this mm. is, you know, one of the chapters in the book is on, well, a sub, sub chapter in the book is on, well, we hear this term about loving yourself, but that idea of self-love is a very difficult thing for people to understand. Um, do you love yourself like you love someone else? Of course not. 
because you know you are you are sensed you sense yourself differently you love yourself a little bit differently you're the center of all that um, but it doesn't mean that you know you're it would be a little odd to have the sort of same perceptual relationship in your love with yourself that you do with your spouse or with your dog mm. or with your favorite ice cream it's a different thing your senses are different you know why doesn't everyone have love why you know there are sociopaths out there people that have do not have the capacity to love just as there are people that are blind or deaf they do not have that sensory capability when you look at something like grief you know and, and we've talked to um we've had some really powerful interviews with people um i was thinking of one in particular in grand island nebraska was a widows and widowers support group um because dealing with grief is something that's both deeply personal and can't remain inside it almost has to be shared um but knowing how to do that is a very difficult thing grief when you look at love as a sense grief basically is sensory deprivation it's love with nowhere to go mm. um and so looking at love as a sense you know you talk about you know the, um i'm drawing a blank on the term again i want to say introspection oh interoception <laughs> interoception i'm yeah. sorry i've actually seen that compared to a seventh sense the sort of you know spatial awareness and sensory perception of yourself. well in the in the medical community i i spoke with another podcast guest and, and this is something i've been finding out is in the medical community it's actually kind of become agreed upon that there's like 21 human senses mm -hmm. that the idea of like the five senses is such like a i don't know if it was plato or aristotle or one of those old philosophers right, right? um that that was such a, a concept that we just latched onto, but in reality right we have a sense of balance right we have a sense of sure. um one of the ones he brought up was magnetism i was like what mm -hmm. like <laughs> you know um so it's it's interesting that there's just there's there's a lot of these things that we can have a sense for yeah well and it's funny i think especially in uh you know just like military people and teachers love acronyms Psychologist, because mm -hmm. my mom, I think I shared with you, my mom is a psychologist. Um, people in, in psychology and psychiatry um, tend to love stages, evolution stages, of stages. Yeah. Um, we and, love acronyms uh, too. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and so it's funny when you say that, you know, where there's five senses or there's six. I chose seven because the mm -hmm. sixth sense has a sort of different connotation. And, you know, people go back and forth about, you know, whether whether intuition counts as a sense or not. But um, love itself has, you know, varying degrees of stages. The most, the most common is the five stages. Um, but and those kind of parallel with with Elizabeth Kubler's Ross stages of grief. You know, the stages of love have a right. sort of developmental process. But I've seen that one going up to as many as twelve too. <laughs> right. Well, can, I know with uh, Kubler's model, yeah. that's that's more around um, grieving somebody right. who has. Or no, it's it's almost a self grief of your own uh, terminality, I believe. Sure. Yeah. Um, which well, is a big it, misconception around that. So, but yeah. sorry, well, go ahead. It's really no. I'm sorry to interrupt you. We keep, we keep having thoughts about it. No, there's just so um, much good stuff. I mean, this is great. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, it's it's you, you triggered something there. I'm trying to go back to when you were talking about Elizabeth Kubler Ross, and you know. With, the stages of grief being something mm -hmm. that we're dealing with inside ourselves. That's one of the difficult concepts uh, that I'm trying to get across in the book is that love isn't, it, it, it all is in us. And that's the point I was making in the TED talk. And that's a difficult thing for people to understand that you don't get love from someone else. 
No mm. one can give you love. That love is something that's in you. It's being awakened in you. And so when we lose someone, when we're grieving for someone, you know, we're basically, they became our pathway. You know, like my wife, we've been together over 40 years. I, I can't imagine na trying to navigate life without her. Um, but I realized that what she does for me, she's my pathway to the love that's in me, just as I am mm. for her. And when you share that with each other, that's the area that we say, you know, we're in love. We're doing that with or for one another. Um, and so when, when you brought up, you know, the idea of grieving as being the loss of something. Sorry, she's calling me. That's okay. The theme, the theme from Young Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love Just that. Do it our usual lunch call. Um, but that's that idea that, you know, we, we're grieving something within ourselves. You know, mm. when Kubler Ross went through denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Um, those are all things that are happening internally. And when I do other, when I've done other presentations, other podcasts, and people say, well, you know, that seems so counterintuitive. Of course, I love my mom or I love my dog. You know, this is something I'm, I'm giving to them. No. Just in the same sense, I think to draw a science comparison, this is where that geosciences thing comes in. You don't get heat from the sun. Mm. There's no conductive material in space for you to receive heat from the sun. Yes, it's hot. It has an internal you know, fusion generator. It's turning hydrogen and helium and heavier atoms. But there's nothing conductive in space for you to get heat from the sun. What's happening is radiant energy from the sun is striking Earth and exciting molecules down here. Wow. That motion, that vibration of, that, of molecular structure is what's causing heat. Energy from the sun is reaching you here and it's generating heat here. Love is much the same way. It's a sort of radiant energy. It's something that we can influence with one another, but you don't give it away any more than you could, you know, we look at love as being a sense. I can't give you my sense of sight. I can tell you what mm. something looks like. I can tell you what it means to me. You can share your sense of sight. Our senses of sight are different. We're going to be looking at different things. We can share a certain amount of them, but we can't share the sense itself any more mm. than we can share love. Hopefully, you know, you and I are friends. We There's some part of the love that's in us that's awakened when we go, God, Josh, I haven't seen you in so long. <laughs> it's just right. great. I just love seeing you again. You know, there's a part of me that's reawakened when I see you. Mm. you know, that isn't something I'm giving you or that you're giving me. But we're something inside it, of you, something it, awakening, awakening it within each other. Yeah. And this is why, you know, I, I in... I say it's a challenge for psychology in particular because psychology tends to look at love as a behavior or an emotion. Mm. What relationships have to do with love. And so behaviors and emotions as part of relationships, absolutely part of psychology and counseling. And it's, it's invaluable what can be offered there, but to understand love within us isn't something psychology is ever going to be able to answer. Mm. Any more than, you know, neuroscientists can't answer the hard problem of consciousness. I don't know if you're familiar with the hard problem, what that means. Vaguely, um, uh, yeah. Loop back to it. Or, <clears throat> you know, chemists can say these are the constituent elements of life, but they can't say, how do you take all these chemical compounds and create life? Right. Them? You know, these just aren't questions that, 
that discipline's not prepared to answer. Right. So again, this is one of the reasons why I'm looking to all these different fields, you know, science, philosophy, religion, our personal experience and seeing is what are the commonalities between all those things? And can we, using all those things together, answer what is love? And back to the hard problem. What the hard problem in, in consciousness studies, um, there was, uh, I want to say Chapman, if I remember right, the neuroscientist that first developed the term. We know, for instance, what the neurocorrelates are for the taste of coffee. We know what areas of the brain light up. Um, we know that we can, we can describe the taste. Um, we know what the chemical composition of coffee is. We know what causes taste buds and neural receptors in the brain to translate all that information. Mm. But the experience of it, what's called qualia, um, and I know it's a loaded term in neuroscience, qualia has a pretty definite you know, definition. Um, but that overall sense, the experience of it is going to be different for me than it is for you. And yeah. the memories that it triggers and the difference in the taste and, you know, how we react to it physiologically, all those different things that go into the experience of coffee that we say that I'm aware of this experience. Neuroscientists, study, researchers have no idea. That's called the hard problem. The easy mm. problems are the neurocorrelates and, you know, what are all the constituent elements? The hard problem is what is that experience? Where does it come from? And more importantly, and more recently, is that experience an emergent property of the brain? In other words, does consciousness originate with the brain or is consciousness outside the brain and the brain is simply receiving it? In the same way that, say, if you studied a, a radio and you said, you know, these are the mm -hmm. transistors or go back a few years, these are the tubes. These are all the parts that heat up when it's sending me a signal. Can you therefore postulate that the radio is producing the signal or is it simply receiving it and amplifying it to you? These are questions that we haven't been able to answer. I'm starting to, to suspect through the research that I've been doing for the book and what we've heard from people, especially in, in philosophy and religion, that there's something in, there's some parallel process between love and consciousness and the consciousness does not it's not an emergent property of the brain. There's, there's some part of consciousness that exists outside of us. This is a personal postulate. Um, and I know, I, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. I have no extraordinary evidence of this yet. But my experience in the research that I'm doing is starting to suggest that love is a parallel of consciousness Consciousness exists outside our brain. It's not an emergent mm. property of us, which I think is a very anthropomorphic conceit to think that, hey, we invented this. It just right. popped out of us. <laughs> um, and therefore, love itself, and this is part of the, the concept of aerosphere, is something that exists outside of us. Mm. We, we receive it. We're able to process it. Our relationships are certainly based on it. We didn't invent it. We're not quite sure where it came from. And yeah. it probably exists in a larger form outside of us. And and by that, I don't mean anything metaphysical because, you know, you know, I'm a I'm a biker and a science teacher. I'm well right. rooted in the material, <laughs> you know, matter matters world. Um, but when you look at 
I tend to draw parallels between nature and reality. Mm -hmm. You know, when you look at, you know, atoms forming molecules, forming cells, forming multicellular organisms, those things in turn form an ecosystem of a planet. Planets form solar systems. You have this sort of Russian nested doll of existence. I can't help but think that love and consciousness have to be some kind of, there has to be some kind of parallel. Lower forms mm. of life, consciousness studies are starting to show pretty conclusively that the more complex a life form, the more complex, the, more, the greater is its consciousness. Logically, if it's following the same pattern as the rest of the universe that we see, that consciousness, yours, all the cells of our body have some measure of awareness. Now, if you want to call that consciousness, some people would say consciousness is a product of self-realization. You know, are you aware of yourself? It's self-awareness. Mm -hmm. We can go back and forth on that, but your cells have some form of awareness. They react to their environment. All those cells together make up you. All of us together, the, the audience in the TED Talk, you and I sitting here, a classroom, a football game, groups of people. You hear it's a negative, it's a pejorative, but you hear the term mob mentality. Groups of people form a kind of collective consciousness. Political bodies are like that. Mm. Um, you know, the the entire... It, it, it's hard not to take that and draw from it that the collective consciousness of humankind must form a sort of whole. And if there's life elsewhere, which you know many of us tend to believe that there is, perhaps the universe itself constitute is is made of smaller consciousness. And eventually, right. eventually, you get to a point where you have the sort of ultimate. And I hate to use the term God, but, you know, for lack of a better term, you have this sort of terminal consciousness. It, mm -hmm. it has to end with something. Now, this is where and this is something that just came to me the other day because somebody asked, well, why do we love? OK, you've explained you're going to even if you answer what is love. Can you say why? Oh, another well, journey. <laughs> well, no, but it occurred to me. Yeah, sort of, because. We love the things that grow us. We love the things that make us feel mm. like we're more than we are. And I know that's a sort of amorphous term, but basically what we're looking at is, you know, I love the things that make, that grow my soul, that grow my spirit, that make me feel like I'm better. I'm more whole. I'm, I'm bigger than I used to be. Well, imagine if there was, if there is this sort of Russian nested doll of consciousness and eventually you get to this ultimate form. This ultimate form, if it's whatever term you want to use, you know, universal consciousness, God, whatever, must ask the biggest version of the same question we have. Why am I here? Mm. What's, what's the meaning? Get into all it's these existential questions. <laughs> that, love, that love would be if, if you could create a way of, of making meaning, of finding meaning, what better way than create love? And have all these little bits of yourself that are the sort of collective consciousness everywhere throughout the universe experience it. So if I had to answer that question right now, where all this is leading me to is love is God's search for meaning. Mm. This is just, I mean, I don't even know where to start. There's just so much to process <laughs> with all of this. I mean, no, believe me, I know <laughs> yeah. all, of this, all of this started with that. You know, me and my wife sitting in a coffee shop and going, so what do you want to do? Let's go ask people about their love stories. And from this, you know, it all grew into, yeah. you know, 
sitting in a sitting in a prison hospice and watching mm -hmm. people whose love is devoted to serving in their last days people that have committed acts that most of us couldn't possibly imagine mm. is a depth of love i'll give you another for instance along the same lines when we were in um lexington kentucky we interviewed a woman latonya jones um who is a death she's a victim i don't say victims advocate she's a criminal rights advocate she works with the families of death row inmates um and counsels them because they're kind of the forgotten ones in the whole judicial system. You know, if right. you have someone in your family that has committed an act that's so heinous that they've been sentenced to death, mm. what does that do to the family? Yeah. How do you how do you even start to deal with something like that? There's just so many, you know, because it's your son or your brother or your husband or your friend. And you have to come to terms with you know, what they've done, what that means to you. You still love them, should you? I mean, there's just so many nested layers of things. And I asked her, I asked Latanya, I said, when people find out what you do, you know, and the kinds of people that you're working with, mm -hmm. um, and I had, I, we have to excuse ourselves a lot because I said, I'm going to ask you some really personal questions. And if you don't want to answer, that's fine. But in your work, you must have come across people that say, well, this guy, you know, did, and I don't want to fill in the blanks. You can use your imagination because right. you hear the stuff on the news all the time. That committed this act that was so horrible that doesn't he or she deserve this? Mm. She looked right at me and she said, I can tell you without a doubt, I've never met a monster. And I thought that was just such an incredible hmm. depth of love for people to be able to look through all that and say, in the, the essence of who you are, this thing that we share, this, this love that makes us, that defines our characters, that makes us who we are, I still see that in you. Mm. Is, is incredible. You know, we were, uh, sorry, I'm a storyteller, so I'm constantly- No, this is, this is beautiful. That, that same, by that same token, we were in um, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and we were in a really big, <laughs> I said again, we go places where, a couple of South Dakota bikers have no business being. And we're in a really rough area of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And we were on our way out of town. Um, and we had to stop for batteries, which means going to this store, which is basically a fort. The whole thing is enclosed in steel and brick. They have wow. a security guard out front. Um, it's a chain link sort of iron. All, all the batteries and everything that's uh, batteries, razor blades, everything's locked up inside. So when Tony goes inside, she has to have somebody walk her to where the batteries are, unlock the thing. By There's a fellow sitting out in front of the place in a broken down motorized wheelchair. He's, got, he's a veteran. He's got a Navy hat on with the name of his ship on it. And he's holding a sign up. And I was behind him, so I couldn't see what the sign said. But you can fill in the blanks. You know how almost got right. was. You know, unfortunately, this is one of the things we found ubiquitous around the United States is homelessness that we have. We have this entire invisible population of people mm -hmm. in the United States there for a lot of different reasons. Substance abuse, primary among them. Mental um, health. Woman, yeah. Mental health mm -hmm. issues, especially since the 80s. You're probably familiar with, with all yeah. that history. A woman came by and he's holding the sign up and I was, I was parked, sitting on the bikes behind looking at him. And this woman came, comes up in front of him and she's wagging her finger at him. And then she puts her nose up in there and she shakes her head and she walks in. And you just see this man drop that mm. sign in his lap. And if deflation had an aura 
Just imagine it exploding out towards you. You could just see the hopelessness. And another fella right behind her in another wheelchair, you know, is missing an arm, just wheeling with one hand, you know, and he and I, I was close enough to hear what he said because he looked right at this fella and he said, I see you. That was it. Not hello, not I love mm. you, not do you need anything. He just looked at him and said, I see you. And that man, you could see his body language. He straightened back up and you could see him nod. Mm. And it was like just that acknowledgement of I'm a human being. I recognize this love, this whatever this thing is that we share, it's still there. And at that same moment, Tony came walking out. She had she bought two bottles. She had her batteries, of course. She had two bottles of water. She hands him two bottles of water and gives him a big hug. And uh, as she's walking by and back to the bike, she's smiling. And I see him turn around at her and, and he smiles. And my heart just went, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> We're, we are we are onto something here that people need to acknowledge. They need to be reminded that we're not alone. You know, this this is something in the classroom that we share. It's something on the street that we share. It's something as as Americans, unfortunately, we've forgotten we share. There's you know there's a common consciousness, or there used to be a, a kind of unity in you know a shared history and a shared culture and a shared ideal, um, you know that is transcendent. And mm. the more we got into it, you know, you were talking about God. There's just so much. I know because every yeah. time one of these stories happens, every time we encounter one of these people, every time something new comes out from one of the researchers I'm going through, I'm going, there's something so essential about all this that we've, I don't know if we've forgotten or if it was ever there to begin with, but we better start learning it. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I mean, again, it's just the, the experiences you have had through, you know, I, for a while, I, I questioned why did they call this journeys to love, right? <laughs> the journeys that you've been on you and Tony, I mean, I can't even begin to imagine the experiences you guys have had and how profound and meaningful this must've been. Oh, uh, it's been, it's been phenomenal. You know, we, um, there's so many times, oftentimes when we do interviews, um, especially when Tony's there, because she's kind of our color commentator, mm -hmm. uh, people are always asking us, one of the most common questions we get is, you know, well, what's your favorite story? You know, the, the questions we commonly get the most often is, what's your favorite story? How'd you get started? Mm -hmm. um, and and where what is the, love? <laughs> what is love? Where are the friendliest people? People mm. always want to know that. It's kind of like the weather. Everybody around the United <laughs> States always thinks their weather changes more than anybody else's. Right. Which is funny. Um, because obviously yeah, it's the, Colorado. <laughs> yeah. Or South Dakota. And, I'm just messing with you. Yeah. No. <laughs> but, you know, and each time, it's funny because each time somebody asks us that, it's, it's always a different story. Mm. Um, you yeah. had asked. And, you know, before we got together, you were saying, well, was there anything that relates, you know, directly to sort of, you know, counseling or, or psychiatry? Mental or, health. You know? Yeah. And, off, and yeah, I mean, I, I know our time is limited, but um, just just one right off the bat was when we were in uh, Grand, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, mm. We came across a couple. They were actually our Airbnb hosts. And we've had a bunch of Airbnb hosts that were just like destined to become interviews because you're living with somebody. You might as well whip the cameras out and ask them a few questions. Their name were uh, Dan and Wendy. 
Mm-hmm. And two weeks before, we didn't find this out until after we were staying with him. Two weeks before we arrived, um, Dan had just been diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. Um, wow. he had been in a, he'd been in an automobile accident. And as part of the follow-up to the treatment and diagnostics he was going through, um, they'd given him a brain scan and found that he was actually part of the, and I forget what the brain area was. It's near the corpus callosum at the top of the um top of the prefrontal cortex i forget i brought a bike on it anyway that it was basically dead he had an entire area of his brain that was no longer reactive wow um, and through that they said well these you know he's got signs of early onset alzheimer's um and dan was you know a construction worker entrepreneur go-getter you know always been healthy all of a sudden life totally changed Mm. And Wendy had just lost her sister to complications from Alzheimer's a year previous to this. And now she's facing doing this all over again with her husband. And it was coming at a time when they'd already had some financial problems. They They had some family issues going on. She's the matriarch for this family. And now she's having to pull side gigs. She's Airbnb being the house, trying to generate money that way. She's trying to navigate you know, all these medical issues that are coming up with Dan, all of a sudden her world's been turned upside down. She's got nobody, nobody to Mm. lean on. She's, she's the ultimate arbiter of strength in this family. And when we asked them, you know, that, that sort of, you know, what's your secret question evolved into something before we started asking what is love into what we call the linchpin question. What's the one thing without which your relationship wouldn't be the same as it is now? Not that it wouldn't exist, but what's right, the one be thing different. It, yeah, establishes its character. Through all this, she looked at Dan and she said, because you're the strongest person I've ever known. Mm. That Even through all this, what she's seeing in him isn't their troubles and their trials. She's mm. seeing strength. And each one of these stories, you know, we come across these people and, you know, their expressions of love are doing everything from, you know, child care to addiction counseling to, you know, just the kinds of daily travails that a couple like mm-hmm. that faces. And when we started out, I, I was teased, Tony, that when we started, you could have put our mission up. We were actually originally called Love in America. And I'll, right, I remember curious, that. I'll, I'll tell you why we changed the name. It's kind of funny. Uh, but I said, you know, you could have put a marquee up above the, the grand opening party that we had before that first that said, see the great love stories with capital letters, capital G, great love stories. And, and after about three years and 50 or 60,000 miles and a few hundred stories, we realized that was totally wrong. What we were after weren't the great love stories, this Gable Lombard things that were going on. It was mm. it was the lowercase g great love, the the great love that we were finding with Dan and Wendy, that we were finding with you know on the Rosebud Reservation with Greg Graycloud, um, that we were finding through these little stories and the little everyday stories, not not the epiphanies, not the the grand moments that were happening mm. to people, but what love was doing in people's lives every single day. Yeah, that is, I mean, I'm, I'm honestly at a loss for words. There's just so many beautiful things that you shared and, um, man, I'm just, I'm stuck in it. <laughs> this is amazing <laughs> what you've done and what you and Tony have been able that. to accomplish. And, um, I have so many more thoughts. I mean, I, I'm almost like, man, we need a part two going here, but, 
Well, we can do that after because I'm going to have the manuscript for the book done in July. Yeah. Um, oh, great. And then I've got um, I've got some a few beta readers. Um, some of the researchers that I've whose work has gone into it. I'm I'm hoping to rope into being beta readers on the yeah. book. Yeah. Um, and then once that process is complete, then I'll be doing an agent search. And so after, maybe after the manuscript's complete, if you want to get yeah. back together again, hundred percent, do that. And if you yeah. know anybody that wants to volunteer for beta reader on a, <laughs> you, you got I'm a, I'm a huge reader, dude. I, I don't know if you remember that, but, um, I mean, I'm quite the book collector if I do say so myself. So I will hundred percent take you up on that offer. All right. Um, yourself volunteered. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting to me. I, I wonder if we could just finish with this. It, a lot of what you're making me think of is, you know, we're asking these big existential questions and, um, it makes me think of Yalom. Have you heard of Yalom before, Irvin Yalom? He is a founder of um, – he's one of the founders of existential psychotherapy, which um, is a therapy that really focuses what he, he posits as these four givens of life, right? Meaning this is something we all experience to some degree, right? Or at some point in our life or to some varying levels, right? We, we all have these givens that make up life. And, and he posits that these four are um, – that we are all meaning-seeking creatures, right, or individuals. We are all um, going to die, right? So death is one of those givens. Um, isolation, right? It's, it's kind of a morbid thing, but isolation meaning that ultimately um, we die alone, right? And so there is this sense of isolation, of, of having to find those relationships in life, um, and that ultimately it, it takes this kind of – uh, this motivation or, or I, I don't know, he goes into a lot more, but, um, and then free will or freedom, right. That ultimately we have free will to make the choices we will. Mm -hmm. Right. And this has just been kind of coming up to me, uh, coming up to mind as you're speaking. And it, it makes me feel like if, if I could add to the almighty Yalom, who is, you know, uh, a role model of mine in terms of, of counseling and, and for many others, existential is just a, a big field. But um, if I could just add, it seems like what we're talking about is we can almost add this concept of love, right? Um, to this existential given of life where it doesn't even, we, we don't fully understand it yet. You're doing a lot of work to try and understand it, but it's something that we all experience. I would wholeheartedly agree with your interpretation. Mm -hmm. um, and for the fellow that you're referring to, I would agree with him on two of those. Yeah. Um, because what you describe and what, what existentialism and nihilism uh, really rely on is the idea of duality. Mm -hmm. um, and this is when I go into the religion section, it's one of the reasons why I really break it down into Western and Eastern religious faiths um, and the differences in how they see love and things like mortality, um, isolation, because, you know, the Western mind is dualist. We tend to think of, you know, there are dual realities. I am inside. Everything else is outside me. Yeah. This is things I'm experiencing and bringing in. Whereas, you know, Eastern philosophies and Eastern religions tend to see things as non-dualist, sort of collectivist. Mm -hmm. We are all part of the same thing. Right. Um, and what I'm learning through the studies and through the stories and through the research that we're doing is, is probably, you know, non, a non-dualist point of view is probably what our ultimate identity is. Um, mm. We just have a a currently existing reality where we have to deal with a dualist world because frankly, and I'm going to give you some other reading, look up a fellow named Dan Hoffman. 
Yeah. Um, Professor Hoffman is one of the foremost researchers in um, consciousness studies. He's got a really good book out right now called The Case Against Reality. Mm, um, I'll make sure and, I'll link it in the episode description. Yeah. Right. And he, he has some, um, his key idea is called um, uh, interface theory, that mm-hmm. you're, that the world, the way you perceive it, your perceptions are limited um, because perceptions are not a product of, uh, of um, reality, but a product of fitness. Evolution mm-hmm. has defined us to be able to, to sort of navigate the world and to see the world broken down into a reality that's useful for us, not that's actual reality. Yeah, we're right at the end of your time, so I really can't go into too much. No, more that's of that. okay. But, um, yeah, uh, the uh, the idea of getting back together again, maybe maybe we can just bookmark it there. Yeah, hundred we'll percent with that idea, because um, yeah, well, and, and, work and Lipton's and yeah, you know, those are really. And there's one other fellow too that's um, doing work in uh, near death experiences, um, mm. Professor Bruce Grayson, and that's playing into many yeah. of the places that we're going with this research now. Yeah. Well, I'm super excited for the book. I'm super excited to see where this goes. Um, one thing I always do like to leave uh, for my audience is just any kind of words of wisdom that you would like to pass on. Something simple, almost like a mantra or a quote or something like that. But just um, after all these experiences, what are your words of wisdom? Oh, that's an easy one. Mm. <laughs> you are not alone. Mm. That's yeah. if, if there was one of if there was one message that love teaches us, no matter what manifestations of it or who we've talked to, um, I can say without a doubt, even when it seems like it, you are not alone. Mm-hmm. Well said. Thank you, Mr. Burns. It was Absolutely. such a pleasure. Uh, this is uh, so great. So you again. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah.